You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. Hey, do you have the wheel by chance? I have the wheel. Awesome. Well, the wheel lives on my podcasting table. Hey, what if we do this? What if we spin the wheel to start? We sure can. Let's spin the wheel. All right. Landed on equipment. Equipment. Yeah. Dude, we talked so about I, that in episode I watched one. your YouTube video about the Haas lathe you were leaving behind, huh? You like that? How did I, that come across, though? I think it came across as fairly neutral. It seemed like it was a solid machine that had unattended running reliability issues that made it not fit your workflow. Not that it's a bad casting or a bad turret or a bad interface or anything like that. Yeah. And so I could easily see that machine working really, really well for somebody else doing something else with it. Yeah. But I'm also well, not a lathe guy. I've never run a lathe, not once. So I have no experience. So the backstory on that is, and to catch up everyone, it's a Haas ST30Y reboot model year. I believe it's 2020. We put out, I want to say at least three videos on the topic. Maybe one was a delivery, one was a one year later, and another was Haas versus Dusan rematch. I think I can see that thumbnail in my head. But I knew what I was buying. I knew that I was buying a reboot machine. So also keep in mind that I'm about 40 minutes from the Haas factory. The reboot is basically, hey, it's a new style. It has the same model number, but it's all new casting, different approach. Geometry is different. It was definitely an improvement on previous models. I can say that because I know other Haas owners, Hosley, the owners that they had their gripes. This one, I loved it. It was great compared to the Doosan, all the guys loved it, but I knew what I was buying. I was buying an early edition. If I remember correctly, it was one of the first like five off the line. So a beta. A beta. Yeah. It wasn't quite communicated that way, but they said, Hey, things happen on these. Just know that we'll cover you for whatever happens. Almost like yeah. an unspoken extended warranty. We didn't have, no, we did have issues, but they weren't design or construction built quality issues. There was a, the light was buried way back in the corner and the corner is a solid eight feet from the cutting area. It's a big, long lathe. And so when I brought up that concern, they said, oh, just move it. There's another mounting bracket, like right to the right of the door great. Why don't you do that day one? But you know, they could be doing that day one. <laughs> so I also knew that in that video, I was hoping to emphasize that it wasn't a capability issue. It wasn't a quality issue. It was a maturity issue. So like the Doosan part catcher is this cradle that swings up and gently catches the part in an HDPE lined basket. And then it delivers that to the door and it goes on to like some type of neoprene belt. So everything is soft. White glove service. It, yeah. If a machine could give you white glove service, that's what it does. I've said this several times, but the Haas has this just pop-up ramp and yep. the parts essentially walk the plank and it's a metal plank and it goes into a metal, big, dumb box is what I call it in the video. And then they just stay there and they clank on each other. The fact that the Doosans drop it off on a belt, no parts collide. So yeah, 
it was intuitive because we know the Haas control. You know, there was a few software things and probably some design things that I think if they change, if they really buckled down, they could be right there at the same maturity as the Dusans. Really quick, one of the comments that came across was like, yeah, I can see why you would want to standardize with Dusan. I didn't even bring that up, but man, standardization from a lean point is such a game changer. I've been reading some articles recently on car interiors, just been a little bit of a kick. I'm interested in a Tesla. It's not really in the budget right now, but of all the ones that are out there, I've driven a three and I've driven an S plaid. But the one that actually looks interesting to me is the Model Y mm. because I can get it in a seven seat configuration and fit my whole family. I don't drive like a maniac. I don't need an S plaid. I need something that I can put everybody in and tool around town with. Mm. But the other EVs on the market, there were a number of really interesting articles about the movement toward and then back away from touchscreens. The idea that your car's console was essentially just an iPad on wheels. Yeah. And I had the experience in the fall of going and test driving a used BMW 550 X drive that was being sold near me. Is that electric? And no, that's just no, a, okay. that's a turbo. It's a pretty powerful all wheel drive BMW. A friend of mine from out of state was considering buying it and asked me to take part of my afternoon and go test drive. I'm down for test driving a nice car. And I climbed in and sat down and looked around at the control and cockpit layout of the car and was immediately revolted. Just like, mm. oh, this has so many knobs. This has so many switches. It just had buttons everywhere. There was yeah. just so much stuff. It was just like the difference between a really simple camera and a modern digital camera that can do like everything. And it's got endless menus. You have to toggle through and toggle through and toggle through. And it used to be like, hey, you adjust your aperture, your f-stop, all that stuff. You do a light sensing and you set your exposure and you go. Yep. Pretty simple. And it was interesting to me when I've driven a Tesla that I found myself really liking the steering column controls because they, like an iPad or a, an iPhone screen, they change their function depending on what thing you are trying to do at that moment. And so there doesn't have to be a hard button for every possible function. Like, this is weird, but I don't use cruise control. I literally never use cruise control. And so having all those buttons for cruise control on my wheel, it's just in my way. I'd rather have other stuff there. I'd rather be able to like program that to control climate or something else. Yeah. And the examples I looked at as some of the other EVs and their descriptions of the interior layouts, how unintuitive. It's amazing how unintuitive the design of some of these things is. You look at it and go, has the person who designed this ever driven a car? Like, has the right. person who designed this ever tried to steer with their knees while eating a burger, while going 85 miles an hour, while trying to reach back and hand french fries to a child in the backseat? <laughs> has this person ever done these things? Because if they did that, they would know that that button shouldn't go there. Right. Like under no circumstances should that button be there. Andrew, you just described like level seven fatherhood that's amazing. oh yeah no it's yeah. the feed yourself have your drink pass along the food steer the car stay on the highway that's good that's good no you know what so three vehicles are in my family so we have the an f-150 it's a 2016 i remember like ford has always kind of pushed technology their slogan i think 
in the teens, 20 teens, was hands on the wheel, eyes on the road. Yep. And I don't, I just don't know too much about vehicles. That was like my first new vehicle, a truck in 2016. And it was kind of game changing because I, I literally, I was living their slogan. Fast forward to my Model 3. It's a touchscreen. Now I'm by nature, like kind of a minimalist and simplicity is definitely one of the tenants we preach around here and on public on the videos, but it's almost at this point, hyper simplistic where the other day I'm going, wait, I just need to open the glove compartment. Where is that? Tesla, yeah. I feel is progressive. Now there's a button on the steering column. You push it and you just say, open the glove box and it opens. <laughs> Or make not, it cold or make it warmer. Puzzle box. It, There's no, no configuration. That's right. So the middle vehicle is a nightmare of both worlds. So it's my wife's Pacifica hybrid van. Yep. It has, well, let me think about this. Three controls. There's a steering wheel control. There is a physical button knob control and a touchscreen control for source and volume. And then there's, of course, the button, the thumb controls, cruise control. And then for climate, there's three, including the back where the kids sit. And I look down there and the knob for the volume and the climate are the same shape. They've just repurposed it. And I'm literally having to read labels while I'm driving. Yep. And I go, this is not, th what this, this is not means, safe. it's <laughs> not safe. And so I tell my wife, Hey, care, can you just turn down the heat? <laughs> you know? So, and then it, it defeats the point. Like they, they throw every option at you and it's the worst of all worlds. My wife drives a Ford Flex and I feel the same way. It has, I drive a Honda Civic, a 2014 Honda Civic, and it has physical controls, knobs for climate. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy. It's comprehensible. It has a touch screen for clock and radio, Bluetooth, whatever, which I don't like, mm -hmm. but I don't have to touch it that much because I'm basically just always hopping in my car and picking up with whatever podcast I was listening to and I control volume from the steering column. That's fine. But in my wife's car, I hop in and making adjustments to the climate change, you have to go to the climate tab and then you have yeah. to select front or rear. And then you have to like soft touch a thing that doesn't give you any tactile feedback. Right. And there's a lag. It's like mm -hmm. tap, tap, like you're trying to turn the fans up or down. It's like tap, 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 tap. And then they go from nothing to all the way on. You're like, oh, yeah. too much. Tap, 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 tap. I just end up chasing it around. It is maddening. It's like trying to play an old school video game when your mouse cursor starts to lag and like you start running around oh, like you're yeah, drunk. Latency. You can't, you know where you're going and you cannot get there. Okay. I, I have a theory that just popped into my head because we're both stringed instrument musicians. When you play, you're proficient enough. I'm going to speculate that you're proficient enough to never look at the fretboard and never look down to look at knobs. You just know where they are. Before my Tesla Model 3, my vehicle was a 94 Camry, which I could just reach down. It had a lever that slid to the four different speeds of air. I had the knob for volume here, tune on the right. It was all tactile and I never had to look down. It was like playing an instrument. I feel like that's the good old days. I think we've gone too far technologically. And it's a lot of it's feature creep. Like there's just a lot of things that literally I'll never use. Like that BMW had four different suspension modes. Yeah. That you could right. set the car in that would change the preload on the suspension. I'm like, 
I drove the car for half an hour. Uh huh. I could not figure out how to work the radio. <laughs> I couldn't. It's like I couldn't get basic, basic stuff to work. And the drive selector was a knob that looked kind of like a space mouse, a large round knob that you just turn laterally. And it's like, this doesn't give me any positive feedback. It just, this feels terrible. I don't like this at all. Incredibly disconnected from typical driving with a knob. Yeah. The one control that I miss more than any other though, my first car was a 2000 Jeep Cherokee. And for balance and fade on the audio system, it had a little joystick. Oh, you could just reach over and say, I'm going to go front light, front left, back right, back left, or in the center. And there was no day temp. You couldn't click it ever exactly perfectly in the center. So you were always approximating center balance, center fade. Okay. But in level seven dad mode, quickly fading things all the way to the back is a critical function. Yeah. Kids are like, hey, can we listen to this annoying song? I'm like, great, put it on, fade it back. Yes, please. And in my wife's car, it's like, okay, I'm going to pull over, mm-hmm. put it on, <laughs> and then fight this touchscreen for a few minutes until I can get it faded back. And it literally is four or five clicks and then drag a slider. And I'm like, this is... Hey, you skipped searching it on YouTube to find a video of how oh, to operate yeah. it. What we've actually done is we have a family Spotify account and each of the kids gets to run a few of their own playlists and pick things they want on there. And so then they can ask for stuff off their playlist. No. You go to YouTube to find out how to work oh, your climate instructional control how to work the controls. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, so, man. hey, let's bring this back to equipment. So one of the things I've watched, uh, my guy, John, when his head is in the deuce on, he's reaching over to the control and he's feet overriding, he's spindle, all that stuff. And it's all tactile and he's pushing the buttons and you can't do that on a Haas. There's just two big square cycle start fetal button. There's the jog wheel. And then the, uh, the touchpad, which there's no familiarity. You just don't know where you're at. The brothers are the same way, right? They have lots of switches and buttons. Yes. Depending on options, mm-hmm. you've got your rapid speed, your feed rate, your spindle override knob, and then you've got, I'm not sure what they're called, but you have buttons that have tactile feedback. They're not just soft keys on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I have all C00 control machines. I have no D00 control. So none of my machines are touchscreen. Mm-hmm. And actually, speaking of standardization, the last time that we had a Yamas and Service Tech in for an unrelated thing, I said, hey, by the way, while you're here, can you update the firmware on these two machines so it matches these other two machines? Wow. Because there were some interface changes. Yeah. And what we found is actually my original two machines, both my speedios are old enough that they cannot run the same version of the firmware as my newer three machines. And so there are some non-standard screens between those two groups of machines that we're never going to be able to even out. But those mostly involve like machines and communication parameters, things that are buried several menus deep that are involved in setup, but not really in daily operations. So the operators don't need to get into there. But just the consistency of knowing on each machine, I have these parameters all available and this is how I set them is nice. Hey, is the brother operating system, is it truly brother? Or is it built on FANUC or what do you know um, about that? As far as I understand, it's basically Linux in the background. Okay. All right. The C00 control, it has a lot of mac- macros work basically the same way as FANUC. There are some different syntax things, but honestly... 
I've never worked on a Haas. I've never worked on a Fanuc. I've been mm-hmm. in front of those machines and played around with them. And I've played around a little bit with Heidenheim controls. And there was one other one. Oh, Mitsubishi. And all of them had things that I liked and things that I didn't like. And the brother has things that I like and things that I don't like. One of the things that they've done away with on the more recent controls is shortcut keys, programmable shortcut keys were a huge advantage on the brother because you can say, hey, these are my three most used screens. I want shortcut one, one, shortcut one, two, takes me straight there. No more remembering which thing to tab into and which mode to be in, just shortcut. This is the one I go to, ta-da. And that functionality, as far as I know, isn't available on the D00 anymore. And honestly, unless there were some really compelling reason, either tool number, spindle options, or table size that was necessary for the work we wanted to do, I don't want to change. I don't want to add a D00 machine to the shop until the time comes to basically leap forward to all D00. Because having a mix of two different control systems, some with touchscreen, some with not, it's just going to be a pain. Yeah. And for what we're doing currently, it works. Yeah. I remember when I think Windows was going from XP to 7 or 7 to 10, something like that, or 7 to 8, where Microsoft was almost pleading with <laughs> please, companies, please. please upgrade. And uh-huh. business is resistant to doing that because we go, it's mature, it works, everyone knows it. A few more bells and whistles, that's a detriment to us. Yeah. So, you know, Haas, hats off to them. Like, obviously, I own many Haas machines. I'm not necessarily a fanboy. They work for us, but that's hats off to them for the previous, the first Haas I had was a model year 2000. And up until what is, yeah, the EC400, that's a model year 2022. Day one, a guy knows how to use both interfaces. The Dusons, everyone likes to throw Haas under the bus. And oh, like one of the comments on YouTube said, oh, yep, another YouTube guy ditching Haas for Dusan. Oh, I've got plenty of bad stuff to say about Dusan. A lot of it's just an irritation. And look, I'm not a lathe guy either. So I probably hear about 10% of the irritations. But one of them is that we have four machines that span from, I want to say December, 2014 to the last one, which is a model year 21 that are radically different in their menu position, the keys, everything. That is a pain in the butt. I don't like it. I don't like the non-standard. The guys don't complain. They go, oh no, it's, it is what it is. I'm used to it now. Well, you shouldn't be. You're used to it and you're proficient. That's a credit cost. to you. And, yeah. And they're rock stars. So no, we can have a guy that maybe has less than a year of machine under his belt and just can hop on a hoss. I still poke around the Doosons every now and then when no one's around. And I go, where is that screen that was visible when I walked up to the stupid machine and there's no intuitive way to get back to it? And it's like, <laughs> oh, well, you have to go into the side menu, change modes, and then come back to it. But hit the same button twice. It toggles. But in this other mode, it doesn't toggle. It's single button. Command Z. Yeah. It needs Command Z. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, no, I think the big takeaway for me, and maybe I'll say this in some video, I don't know. So our Doosan lathe overview video did really well. I just looked this morning, it's up to 39,000 views, which is good for our channel, but I'll probably do a Haas overview video as well. And also I want to show like how we've put our work holding products in each one of them in different unique ways. But that is one thing. Maybe I'll mention the standardization of Haas machines across different years. I don't think anyone does it better. Yeah. The more stuff you try to cram in, 
the more you end up having to change to make stuff fit. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, in those articles I was reading about car cockpit, they were just saying like a lot of cars are actually starting to move back toward more actual physical controls. And that weirdly enough, coming off more touchscreeny things, it actually feels in some ways a little more premium to have a purpose built button for this one thing. And so touchscreens in cars are never going to go away. But hopefully they don't remain all encompassing because some functions are just so easy to do by touch. They should just be enabled to be done by touch. So, okay, you drove the Model S Plaid. Yes. And so it did not have turn signal stocks or gear selector stock, right? It was push buttons. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So that, no. I did not like the push button turn signals. I agree. I would not buy it for that reason alone. If you were to lump all this in, the category would be like HMI. Is that is that in automation, human machine interface? I think that's yeah. the best answer. Yeah, I so, call it UI UX. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so all those synonymous terms. Just keep the turn signal stock and the gear selector thing, and I want buttons for my wipers. I don't know, the yoke steering wheel. I love aviation, but I don't think I'd drive a vehicle with a yoke. Now, the EV that I saw that was interesting, I haven't driven one. I think it was a Lexus. Yeah, steer, the whole steer-by-wire concept mm. where Lexus has a yoke, but the ratio at which your yoke yields turn varies based on your speed. That could be awesome, or it could be wildly disorienting. Okay, I'll tell you this. When I got my Tesla... It's such an advanced vehicle. If, if I come to a full stop and I open my door, it puts itself in park. I literally step out and it turns itself off. I mean, they never really turn off. But the difficult part of that is when I would hop into my truck and I had literally like pulled up to parking spots at a store like Lowe's and I just open the door and get out and it lunges forward and it hits like the bump stop. And I go, oh my gosh, I have to put this in park, turn it <laughs> off, parking brake. <laughs> open the door, lock the door with a key fob. All that stuff was automatic. So that's where I think the difficulty would be on that Lexus, because that's going to be a polarizing thing. If your only vehicle is that vehicle, yes, you could probably get used to it. But if you're switching back and forth, yeah, would be risky. That seems like a, yeah, a very much a safety issue. Yeah. And I find I often post a knee on the wheel momentarily to handle something in the car. That's a common parent thing to do. And if you have a yoke and it's basically rectangular and there is no lower curve to it that you can put your knee against and rock slightly. I was driving with my son. He's like, how do you drive with your knee? I'm like, it's kind of like riding a bike with hands free. You can accommodate certain amounts of gradual change in the roadway. You can't take 90 degree corners sharp. You can't do it. And so if I'm going to steer with my knee and like open something and like a kid's like, hey, you open this for me. I can't tear it. Kid passes it up to me and at the right moment, brace with the knee, tear open the bag, hand it back to the kid. You can only do that on a relatively straightish section of highway. You're not going to do that on an on-ramp while you're merging. Right. You just get used to that. Yeah. And the surprising number of ways that a car can either subtly or very, very obviously interfere with your ability to just do normal stuff while you're driving the car is pretty incredible. 
I thought and, you were going to save the many ways a car can kill you. Well, that too. Right that there. too. Yeah, that's funny. But even in software and all kinds of programs, it drives me nuts. I consistently hide Facebook ads because mm. I see just this Facebook consistently feeds me junk. For some reason, I see tons of ads for pet related products. I am not a dog person. Mm. I've never owned a dog. I'm never going to own a dog. Do you have pets? Have, we don't have pets. So. Oh, gosh. I grew up with pets, but not dogs. Our yeah. neighbors' dogs always got hit. And so my parents were like, we're not getting dogs. We lived on a state highway in New York and dogs got hit all the time. So we had cats and our cats stayed out of the road. Yeah. But I'm always seeing ads for like litter boxes and pet toys and things. I'm like, this is not relevant. Why is this this way? And anytime you hit hide ad, it pops up a menu that says, why don't you want to see this ad anymore? And it's a bunch of sort of generic, this is irrelevant, it's, it's inappropriate, I've always yeah, purged. Right. And they reshuffle the order of those every single time. Which means every time you want to actually report something and say, this is not relevant to me, don't show me things in this category, mm-hmm. the number of buttons changes and the order of the buttons changes. So every time it's like, all right, click on this, wait for this, wait for the pop-up. Now read, 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 click. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's in their interest to make opting out of specific advertising as frictionful as possible so that most people won't bother to do it. Sure. But yeah, it's one of those things where, like this could be really easy. I'm curious if you did this. I came across a video of how to privatize your life. Mm-hmm. And so it stepped you through the Android, your browser settings, all this stuff so that people don't track you. It was not a good experience because I was getting irrelevant ads. Like half of the stuff... Literally half the demographic <laughs> is female. So I was getting ads for female things. That is not relevant. I want to see ads for something mechanical. How about that? And I, I don't think I've ever clicked on an image or a banner ad, something like that. But I go, oh yeah, that's right. That's where I left off. I should probably get back to it. Yeah. Let me open that tab in my browser and go back to that warehouse catalog supply site that I was on, something like that. Do you know if you did that? You know, if so you I, I went through Facebook and I basically unfollowed all the interest pages and I went through and I dumped a bunch of things off my friend list and I de-liked a lot of other branded related content that I had liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a pretty arduous manual process to go back and retract all those interactions. Yeah. But I did. And yes, immediately my newsfeed slowed to a crawl where it mm-hmm. used to be, you could hop off and hop back on in five minutes and there's three or four new posts and things. Once I sanitized all that, like, I would leave and come back two hours later and the same top post is there in the newsfeed because nothing else new has come up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually that did a really good job of making Facebook suck even more and be even less interesting. And I was like, you got to entice me with something interesting if I'm going to, if you want me to doom scroll here, otherwise I'm going to be like, oh, nope, same thing. I'm out. So, okay. So one of my guys, he has, I don't know if it's an app or a setting, he's on iPhone but his screen is always in black and white. And I said, Wyatt, what happened to your phone? Did you drop it? No, I have it on black and white mode. And I asked why, and he said, it makes it just a little less visually appealing. It's a minor, subtle, subconscious irritation where I'm just tired of looking at things in black and white without their full context. So trickle it down, I spend less time on my phone. And he still does it to this day. He's been with me for over a year now. So I don't know what that is. You should try that. Try it for a week. See if you can further push Facebook and all the social social media. Settings. 
general accessibility. Are you on I, Android? I'm on iPhone. iPhone, okay. So accessibility. Are there color filters? It says there are color filters. Do we something like that? Do you use an Apple Watch? I'm on Android, and I had an yeah. Android watch. I'm not I a watch person. It. Well, th that's the problem. If you're not a watch person, it just felt like, you know what? Actually, it was too invasive because every little ding and beep and, oh, Amazon just dropped off your package. I'm not at home. I could care less, but it interrupted my flow. Yeah, I just set my iPhone to grayscale. There, oh, nice. And already instantly, it makes my home screen less easy to navigate. I'm pretty particular about the order I put apps in. So the ones I want most are under my thumb when I'm mm -hmm. one-handing the phone. Yep. And I limit myself to only two pages of apps total max. So everything on page one is individual apps to click directly into. And everything on page two is foldered by topic for apps that I use infrequently, but still want to have available. Okay. Like the app that allows me to adjust the AC units in the back bay of our building. I want that app on my phone. I want yeah. to have it, but I need it so rarely that burying it in a utilities folder makes sense. Yeah. Right. Well, let me know next podcast. I'll check it out. See how hey, it goes. I, at least my phone. I know that it tells, it gives me like a weekly report of how yep. much time I spent on my phone. Does Apple do that as well? You can have it do that. I turned mine off because I couldn't control when the report was happening. And it was always popping up on my phone in the middle of our 9 a.m. church service. Oh, gosh. Okay. Which I found annoying. I mean, I sure. keep my phone on silent, but it was making my Apple Watch ping. Uh-huh. Ah, I don't mean yeah. doing this in the middle of church. If you're on stage playing, do you have your phone with you? Usually not. I often leave it in my backpack off the platform. It depends. Normally, I keep my phone on me most of the time during church because I'm also a volunteer on the greeting team. Okay. So even between services, when we've got an hour chunk between services and I'm not involved in music at that point, I'm usually working greeting people who are coming and going. And so I want to make sure to have my phone with me. Just this past week, I ended up making a 911 call. One of our elderly congregants had a medical emergency wow. and had to be transported by ambulance. She was okay, which was a relief. But it was one of those things where if you're responsible for helping and taking care of people, mm -hmm. you need to have that ability to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. When I'm on the platform, I'm playing guitar. Yeah. I what are you going to do? Phone. Yeah, that's true. I had my phone in my right front pocket during rehearsal and it started wait, doing wait, wait, that. Wait. You're a front pocket phoner? Yeah. Is that not? Whoa. Really? Oh, Go man. on. <laughs> okay. Well, so I don't put anything in my front pockets. My front pockets don't exist. Oh. Let me rephrase. When I'm driving, I keep my key fob in there. But as soon as I'm out of my car, okay. everything is out of my pockets. The only okay. thing I keep in there sometimes is a folding knife. But I don't like things in my front pocket. Do you appendix carry? Do you carry, do. first of all? I do. Okay. I is it related to that? That like the front of your body already has something? It's mostly that when you're appendix carrying a firearm, it's above the hinge point in your hip. And so it's basically part of your torso. Okay. And stuff that's in your pockets like shifts and moves around and stuff happens as you are bending and squatting and kneeling. And I just, I don't like the feeling of stuff shifting around in my pockets. People who carry in a, like a large ring of loose keys in their pocket yeah. boggle my mind. I can't even. But I'm really a minimalist in that regard. I don't normally carry a wallet. I don't normally carry keys. Yeah. 
almost all those things live in my backpack, which goes everywhere with me. And if I need stuff, I take it out and take it with me. But all that stuff home bases. So where do you pen? Yeah. Advil, all that stuff. Where do you carry your phone? Back pocket. Back pocket. Back left pocket. Wow. I feel like that's so unsecure for me, at least. I don't know. I feel like someone could just bump into me. Oh, excuse me, sir. And like slip it out of my back pocket because I have a bigger phone. It's a Samsung Galaxy Note 20. Yeah. Mine sticks out my back pocket a little bit too. I normally wear untucked button down shirts. So the stuff in my pockets is basically covered. You can't see it. Okay. But I also don't spend that much time out and about in public. Hey, I think this might be a regional thing because out here in California, we have baggy, saggy clothes. And so our front pockets are down by our kneecaps. Or at least, I mean, I know some people with a big phone and small back pockets, they walk around a bit and they bend down almost twice. The phone gradually climbs out and falls out. Sure. But I've never broken a phone. I rarely, rarely drop a phone. So yeah. Eh, it seems wow. to be working for me, but I, I have guy privilege. I have pants with real pockets. There you go. Oh, so my buddy, Cla- oh, this is great. He goes to, do you guys have Ross? No. Ro- no okay. So Ross is a secondhand store Okay. where you get name brand stuff, but like at clearance prices. And he goes in there one day, and this is back in like the, I want to say like early 2000s, maybe late nineties. And he buys a pair of pants that was a brand new brand called FUBU. <laughs> which is a very much urban, urban oh, yeah. brand. And Damon John is the creator of FUBU, Shark Tank notoriety there. My buddy goes, I can't figure out what this weird pocket is on the inside. It was a gun holster pocket. <laughs> yeah. It, and we were laughing because we're like, no, because it's like triangular. It almost had this trigger relief. It was designed to carry a firearm in an urban context. I don't think they do that to this day, but it was like, okay, that, see, if I were starting a brand and I wanted to get in with a niche crowd, I would sew a gun holster into a pair of pants that I would sell into an urban community. (laughs) It was such like, you can't do that now. I mean, you'd get canceled instantly, but that's why I think in the nineties, it was a lot more. Maybe maybe you would. I just remembered. FUBU was not a big thing where I grew up, but everybody had Junko jeans. Okay. Yeah. Which were like the super, super wide leg skater pants. You'd cut them long and they'd basically cover your entire foot and the jeans would just touch the ground. Got it. Yes. You looked like you, you could walk and it looked like you were just sort of hovering because you barely had legs. <laughs> right. That was not a good time. Everybody had wallet chains because the pockets were super deep and you couldn't get your wallet out. Otherwise, you'd like, you know, totally you'd have your wallet chain to fish it out. You'd be fishing out. <laughs> Craziness. Hey, you want to spin the wheel again? Actually, what I wanted to talk about is yeah. you commented last week that you went ahead and got assessments on the six types of working genius for a bunch of your employees. I did the same for a few of mine. Interesting. How did that go? What did you find out? We're going to review tomorrow, so I'll have to delay that. But it just reiterated, one guy I talked to said, no, what, what his strengths and weaknesses were, it's not going to surprise anyone. What it does is it, is it categorizes those things. You just have a greater awareness of what you're doing. Should I really be discerning right now? It exhausts me. No, I'm not going to think about this. Or I got to go fire up the troops. No, you don't. You don't need to galvanize. That is not a strength. Have someone else do that. (laughs) So we're going to do that as a team. I sent out six of them. Two guys have yet to do it, but we'll review that tomorrow. Tell me about yours. Did you review with your guys? Um, I looked over mine briefly and 
the descriptions of the guys lined up basically with about what I expected, but we haven't sat down as a team to review them yet either. So I was planning to do that tomorrow too. Okay. All right. Great. So the next so I guess podcast. we'll miss this next podcast. <laughs> there yeah. you go. We could spin the wheel again. There was something else that came up. It was, oh, Google reviews. Had a funny experience this week. I had a customer leave a one-star Google review mm-hmm. and I had not realized that I didn't have any Google reviews. And so when this guy left that one one-star Google review, my Google review rating was oh, one star. And I'm terrible. like, that's probably not going to be good for our search results. Wait, really quick. Did you, did you start like a Google My Business account? We do have a Google Business account. Okay. But it's specifically it Google My Business. That puts you on the map. You can control your location and I think photos. so. Okay. Yes, I believe so. I don't handle most of that stuff, so I just, I'm along for the ride. Okay. But we got this one really angry review, and it was actually, incidentally, it was a Facebook thing. I had seen a customer of mine behaving badly in what I considered a semi-public space on mm-hmm. Facebook, behaving in a way that I did not want to be associated with my brand at all. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't going to reach out to him and try to browbeat him about it. I'm just like, I'm going to uncustomer this person. They're not my customer anymore. So- I just went back and I refunded any money I've ever gotten from that mm. customer. And they can keep the product. I don't care. That's fine. I just, I'm uncustomering now. Yeah. And the person went to Google and left me a one-star review for refunding them. That's fantastic. Wow. <laughs> it, was, wow. It, was, it was basically like, this person didn't like my free speech. This is a terrible holster company. So and so I'm like, hey man, that's cool. Yeah. You're not my customer anymore. So what wow. we ended up doing is we actually asked a few friends and we got around and we picked up like 40 or so five-star Google reviews in the past two days. Uh-huh. So our Google rating is now 4.9 and there's this one one-star review hanging out. And managing those kinds of public-facing indicators of the quality of your company and your brand identity is something that I've never really spent a lot of time thinking about, but I've been watching a lot of stuff about branding recently. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Rory Sutherland? No. Really, really fun stuff on YouTube. He's extremely British and he has a lot of really interesting observations. He's a longtime ad man. And what he does a really good job of is explaining the ways in which perceived value in the customer's mind is an actual thing that has real value to your brand and to your company and that it's difficult to quantify and it's not trackable like this link was clicked nine times and it brought this many people to your site at this conversion rate. There's a lot of subjectivity even today in advertising and digital advertising has made it seem more mechanistic, more just like a numbers game. For every thousand dollars we throw at Facebook ads, we get back $3,000 in additional revenue. It's just a pump and cycle game where you're throwing as much money at the advertising as you can until that return rate starts to level out and then you're only mm-hmm. making $3,000 off $2,000 and you start looking at other places to spend that money. And it's interesting to me, I'm trying to think the name of the book it was I read recently, I believe it's by Marty Newmeyer. Yeah, Marty Newmeyer. It was The Brand Gap. Fascinating book, highly recommended. And one of the most important points he drives home is your brand is what your customers say it is. Yeah, wow. It is That's not powerful. what you say it is. Yep. And that brand, the more consistent and cogent your brand identity is, it means consistently from customer to customer to customer to customer, they will feel a similar way about your brand and they will describe your brand. 
articulate your brand in a similar way. If you asked 100 of your customers to describe your brand and you got 100 very different results with no clear trends, you have no cogent, coherent brand identity. But if you hear from customers consistently the same things, that's your brand identity, whether it's positive or negative, especially if it's negative and doesn't match your self-reflection of your brand. That's incredibly useful feedback from customers like, hey, this is what we perceive you to be about due to our interactions with your company. Yeah. And the number of companies that think about branding basically as we want people to recognize our logo is like, oh man, that is not branding. Right. That is not what motivates people to take action. Okay. So it's almost like you're unwittingly crowdsourcing your company brand from your customers, whether you like it or not. The important thing that Newmeyer points out is people don't have to come to you to experience your brand. The main way that people experience brands for the first time is they hear about the brand from somebody else they know. And that expression of what the brand is constitutes that person's entire knowledge yeah, of wow. the brand. Because if somebody says, yeah, I, I bought so-and-so from missing that company, it was a total piece of junk. I couldn't get a hold of a live person in customer service. They dragged their feet, made it hard to get a hold of them. I sent email after email after email and never got a response. By the time I finally got somebody on the phone, they said, I'm sorry, your 30-day return window has passed and they kept my money. Yeah. And you'd be like, oh, well, I'm not going to go pour around on that company's social media and website to see if they say something different about themselves. This sounds like a terrible company that I'm glad I don't do business with. Right. On the other hand, if they say, this company was incredibly responsive. I placed an order. I realized I'd made a mistake. I emailed customer service. They caught the order before it went out the door. They fixed it. They upgraded my shipping. They took complete care of it. Everybody was friendly. The order was here in record time and the product is great. Mm -hmm. That really does carry brand weight. And that depends on your customers actually having that experience. Because you can't say in your YouTube video, we have phenomenal customer service. Customers who experience it and say, these guys have phenomenal customer service, that's where that brand identity comes from. This discussion came up this past Wednesday at my business owners meeting. One of the members in the group owns a hotel, and so mm -hmm. he is the king of dealing with reviews. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of reviews on his hotel. And he said, never reply to the complaint, reply to everyone that's going to read it. Yep. So when someone says... The hotel was disgusting, it smelled, and there was lots of noise. He would say something along the lines of some niceties up top. I always think of like a compliment sandwich, like it's nice, harsh, and then nice. But he says, no, we don't even do that. We just, we tell the reader what we do. We're sorry that you experienced that. We have recently changed our cleaning products that brings up the sanitation level. We are currently undergoing renovations of adding triple pane windows. A neighbor, we have dealt with them through City Hall because they continually have loud music going at night. But thank you for that feedback. And so it gets all the people to read to go, oh, wow, they're actually doing something about this. And then the attention goes from like negative on the hotel to almost like negative on the reviewer, like, oh, this person must have been some type of Karen that just wanted to wreck a business. So 
You know, I was curious. I took a look at the other reviews that this particular customer had left other places. And every review, he'd done a number of other reviews. Every review was either five stars or one star. Yeah, there you go. There were no two, threes, or fours. And that reads to me like, okay, this is a person that that if they feel like they got their way, they love it. Five. Yeah. If they don't get their way, it's the worst thing that ever happened. I feel like most people know somebody like that. And have a box that goes, oh, it's that kind of person. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's just or put them over here. That person, at least. To anything yeah. else they have to say. That's right. Yep. It really can be, though, a danger for a small business owner where you are so personally identified with your brand, especially if the company has your name on it. Absolutely. That it can yeah. be really tempting to get down in the mud and try to argue with somebody. And there's just no, like, oftentimes, you know, backstory that you don't want to reveal like, Hey, the reason you have that problem is because you continue to refuse to follow the instructions after I provided them in writing and then in photos and then shot you a unique video for you walking you through correcting this issue and you refuse to do it. And so the product is continuing to not work for you because you're not using it correctly. If you say that you are going to come off like an enormous jerk. Yeah. Even if it's true, yeah, gosh, that, so, that hits home because we had a Rotovice customer that complained about the first one. We said, well, you, you're not using it how it's intended to be used. I think you should make these changes, this and that. And I said, if we make those changes and send you out replacement components, will you be happy? Yes. And we sent it. And then he complained about that and went semi-public with it. And then he bought a second one and was complaining about that one that we were ignorant as a company because we didn't implement his changes I can't win. I can't win with that. So I said, uh, I think I commented publicly like, yeah, I'm sorry you're having this thing. We went over it for you. Send it back. We'll give you a full refund. We can't have you as a customer. I remember seeing that interaction. Thank you. Yeah. And it made me look like a jerk, but I'm okay with that because I'm not going to take crap from people that are trying to actively, actively diminish the brand of the company. So yeah. is it the right strategy? I would argue that in general, it's not, but I just, I'm just going to stand up for ourselves. I'm defending not just our brand, but I'm defending there's 18 children in the Pearson Work Holding Company that their parents are employed by us. So it's 18 mouths that are fed. Those are the yep. people that I defend against someone that's just totally got just out in left field. So that's successfully using our products to build yeah. their own company. So on the flip side, as business owners, if we dwell on the negativity and we carry these people around in our heart, we're giving them a rent-free space to live yes. in our heads. And that yes. is just not. Yeah. The story that I didn't tell in our move series was the reason why I initially started to look for my own bu- building, because I would say that most people around me, and especially that know me, know that I'm very easy to get along with. I set vision. I have expectations. You don't get to like slack off, but for the most part, I'm just really easygoing. Like I've said before, peace is a principle in my personal and professional life. And that peace would continually get broken by my previous landlord to the point where I haven't raised my voice at someone in years, but he and I were screaming at each other in the parking lot because of accusations. That's maybe a, a hot button for me is accusing me of doing something nefarious when we go above board to just be open and honest. And I'm like, no, I'm over it. I'm done with this. I'm out of here. Point being, 
there's just sometimes where you just you can't take the corporate approach of going we're very sorry to hear your complaint we certainly understand hopefully you'll come back and stay with us again it's like no dude you don't get to do that you you cross the line this is what happens you know so yep. yeah it's and, a balance and i do step into our customer service anytime if we've got somebody who's being belligerent is using profanity in their emails to my customer service team if you do that as the owner i will immediately step in and i will yeah. fire you as a customer. Yeah. If your order hasn't shipped yet, I'm canceling it and refunding it. If your order has shipped, I'm sending you a return label. If you've had your order for a long time and you've used the product and it's not returnable or restockable, I'm giving you your money back. You can keep the product, but you are not our customer and you may not order from us again. Mm -hmm. And it's really not about the person at that point. It's about making sure that my employees know that I will not tolerate somebody abusing them. That's right. Because it's not right for me to use them as a human shield. Right. Yeah. And a lot of customer service is all about management having a human shield. Yeah, absolutely. If you could sum it up, it's, I will not defend my ego. I will not defend my products most of the time, but I will defend try my people. To. I don't think we talked about this. If you, let's pretend we just spun the wheel and it landed yep. on customer service stuff. We had a PPS base that went out and it went to a customer and they came back with a complaint saying, well, I don't remember what the complaint was because there were multiple complaints. They sent photos and we went, oh, that's definitely not right. Sent them replacement parts. Something else didn't work. And I feel like every couple of years we have a customer that we go thousands and thousands of orders. And then we have that one customer that there's six things wrong. And yeah. I, it's just this, I don't know if you've experienced that, but you know who it happened to recently that we both know is Justin from Tolster. Yeah. <laughs> this was years ago. Like we, we sold him these VPUs and they just didn't work. And he's a nice, easygoing guy. Met him personally at like the IMTS type stuff. And it was no big deal. But I'm like, Justin, I am so sorry. This, you have to trust me. This never happens. This is statistically, this has never happened that we had like three or four issues in a row. But we had this issue where the customer was in Phoenix. And so I told my, my number one tech support guy, Carlos, I said, Carlos, this is a nightmare. Can you fly to Phoenix tomorrow with a Pelican case and a brand new PPS base in it and just get there? And he's a pilot, so he loves anytime he hops on the plane. Yes, sir. So he left Burbank Airport, 8.15, landed in Phoenix at 10, Uber, 10.30, took them to lunch. I said, spend a thousand bucks on them if you have to. We have to win over this customer. And it's just a mom and pop. And they were very patient, but we said, we have to go above and beyond. This is so bad that you need to go out there. And then he was back in time for dinner, but that's the extent that we'll go to keep an, a customer happy. But at some point the customer gets abusive or belligerent or is egregious. It's like, no, they got to go. That's you're fired and blacklisted. We're not doing so, that. Yeah. It's just, there, there has to be a line. That brand book, The Brand Gap, Marty Neumeyer, that's one we should read and talk about on the podcast because there's a ton of mm. useful stuff in there. And also Rory Sutherland, I'll send you some links. The amount of things that he's left me sort of scratching my head going, huh, I never thought about that before, is a lot. And a lot of them are about perception. Interestingly, talking about digital marketing, he said, in the modern age, customers can perceive approximately how much it cost for the advertising company to reach them. Mm -hmm. Like a banner, a generic banner ad on a large public website is the equivalent of a person talking into a one-way telephone. The brand is just broadcasting yep. 
It's like one of those little speakers outside a shop. Come in, we're having a sale. Come in. It's like there's literally no tangible cost to the company for that interaction with you. However, if you engage in the customer in a way that they can perceive is not scalable to a large market, if you provide them something that clearly was costly in time and money for you, mm-hmm. it completely changes the perception of what that thing is. And that's it, what I've started doing is one of my favorite tools for customer service because oftentimes it is easier and faster for me to record a one to two minute video, quickly throw it up onto YouTube and text or message the customer a link and say, Jeremy, here is me walking through the exact assembly problem you're having. This is where you're getting this hardware stack mixed up. And I'm going to walk you through it step-by-step. It's clearly a one-off video for him by me. Yeah, It's not a, oh, here's a link to our general assembly instructions for that product family. Mm -hmm. It's Here's exactly what you described to me in your email. Here's how you correct it. I hope you have a great day. Yeah. Bye. Powerful. And it is really powerful because it's obvious to them when I say their name and describe their problem at the beginning mm-hmm. of the video that they are not being given a generic customer service resource. Generic customer service resources are great. And as you refine them over time, this is a separate issue for definitely for a different podcast, but Some of my friends and I have all been messing around with using chat GPT to rewrite and refine a lot of our customer service templates, our pre-made email responses, and actually to do certain things like you can have a version of a generic customer service piece about a product, and you can have chat GPT rewrite it in several different ways. Hey, rewrite this with simpler vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Hey, rewrite this as a numbered list of steps rather than a paragraph of description. Wow. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. And it doesn't get you 100% of the way to a great customer service piece of content, but it can get you 90% there. And then you lightly edit for tone and it's ready to go. Mm -hmm. And the speed with which you can have it digest stuff you've already made Mm -hmm. and convert it into something else useful. I was showing it to a friend of mine. One of my employees is actually in the process of starting his own small business on the side. It's a service-related company, completely, completely different from what we do. But we were talking about content generation strategies. And I said, okay, let's just hop on ChatGPT. I'll show you how I've been using it lately. And I hopped on ChatGPT. I gave it a few sentences of context. And I said, now give me a short blog post that gives the top five reasons why somebody should consider using this service. ChatGPT spits a list right out. This reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. And I said, okay, ChatGPT. Take each of those points and turn it into an outline for a short video. And it took each of those like two sentence points and expanded them into a five or six bullet point list. Video one, these topics in this order. Video two, this in this order. And I'm like, this literally took us two minutes and you have a blog post that you can edit and post about your specific business and what makes it unique. And it's written outlines for you for five, two to three minute YouTube videos And all you have to do is plug in the details that you want to bring out in that video and then follow the script. Ta-da. Wow. And he was just like, yeah, gosh. And so I think at some point we should have an entire episode just on small business chat GPT applications. Yeah. Have you messed around with it much? We have, but we messed around like within the first week when it got all the press, when it came out. 
we're going, this is amazing. This is going to change copywriting forever. But yep. we really haven't harnessed it. We were saying like, hey, uh, like I said, write a video script for a, our palette system overview video. And then I'm like, rewrite it as if Michael Scott were selling this. Yeah. Well, the thing that people I think underestimate is the extent to which everything about what ChatGPT gives you back depends on the quality of your prompt. Actually, at my Vistage business owners meeting last week, we had a guest in for a Zoom conference call, and he basically just said, hey, everybody, everybody has to bring their laptop. We're all going to get on ChatGPT. I'm going to give you examples of all the different ways that I use ChatGPT. And then he gave us templates for different kinds of prompts that he uses to get certain kinds of content back out of ChatGPT. And it was mind boggling. And while I was sitting there in the meeting, I wrote two relatively long LinkedIn posts, edited them and posted them. And I put at the bottom a disclaimer, like this was generated by ChatGPT, but Andrew edited it. And I think that actually is an interesting piece because there already is tons of AI adjacent and AI generated content. And the difference between a fully AI generated thing and one that has been generated by an AI in response to a human prompt and then edited by a real person for tone and sense is the line between that uncanny valley of, I feel like a not real person said that yeah. versus, oh yeah, that sounds like so-and-so. Because the more you interact with ChatGPT, the more it will learn your tone. Yeah. And the more of your previous writing you feed it, the more, you know, eventually you're going to get to the point where you can just say, hey, you probably need to whitelist and blacklist certain things because you don't want all your personal information in there. You could say, hey, ChatGPT, digest these 3,000 business emails from the past four years and use my style, syntax, and tone. Mm. Ta-da. And I was going to ask, because sometimes we get these long, lengthy emails just prompted by our videos. And well, for example, one of the tech guys may not be as technical as myself or Carlos. And so he will read it and go, I don't know what these models are. I don't know what a NHP 4000 is. And I know that's a do song. And so I tell him, first of all, do a control F and search for question marks. And sometimes people just want to know that they were heard. And yep. so I'll just say, okay, we'll email him back. Just say, Jay read this. Thanks for the kind words. Is there something specifically that we can answer about our products? I don't think we've said this, but because we didn't catch a question in your eight yep. paragraph email. But if you could copy and paste that into chat GPT and say, what is this person asking? Or better yet, yeah. how should I respond? Does it do stuff like that yet? You could easily feed it a customer email and say, write a thorough, detailed response to this customer's question, explaining that the reason we don't do that is this. And then oh, you give it a summary yeah. and it will write you an email. Now you'll still need to edit it. Like when I asked it to initially compose some blog post outline ideas for my company, it obviously crawled a bunch of random information about holster companies and inserted details in there that do not map mm -hmm. to our product line. Sure. It's like, yeah, Henry Holsters makes the finest plastic and leather holsters. I'm like, we don't use any leather. There's zero leather in the building. Right. And so there are certain things where you cannot get away from editing it. You have to. Yeah. But the difference between being upfront and saying, this is AI generated human moderated content and putting up chat GPT stuff without any acknowledgement that ChatGPT is involved, uh -huh. I think that's going to be an integrity issue for a lot of companies because the same way that D 
deepfakes are going to completely change the ability for somebody to release a smoking gun video or audio clip. Like these days, if the Donald Trump audio recordings had come out now, it'd be like, well, yeah, but I also just had an AI write an entire Eminem song and then sing it like Eminem. Right. And so who knows if that was Donald Trump or not? He could deny it and a lot of people would believe it. Yeah. Because the lifelikeness of that stuff is becoming so much more, but it means that original thinking Mm -hmm. is still exceptionally valuable the same way that computers allowed certain creative, productive people to be wildly more productive. Mm -hmm. You know, the Pareto curve gets really, really steep at the upper end. I think AI is going to be largely the same way. Now, whether or not Skynet wakes up someday and slits all our throats in our sleep, I have no idea. Yeah. It's possible. These kinds of technologies, anytime something accelerates this fast, completely unforeseen outcomes are normal. Yeah. So we had a group come through and tour the shop and they weren't technical. I would say that they're business adjacent, but at the end, a guy said, Hey, Jay, I'd like to get your take on what does AI look like in your company, in your industry? Are you afraid of AI? And I said, look around, like all these machines are an extension of the principle behind AI, making humans more efficient, doing work that typically took a long time to do. And it just actually does it better, does it faster. Even if it does it wrong, you just discard it and just have it hit cycle start again, make some tweaks. and. I'll need to think through like the ramifications of communicating primarily to a customer or to the internet, to any observer through AI without that disclaimer. But for me, I told them that I'm far more concerned with lack of critical thinking in society. And that backs up what you just said. If you don't have that original thought to let AI run with it, that's detrimental to society. That's why I'm not a fan of, well, what you taught me last week, doom scrolling. (laughs) That's just mindless mental engagement that has no value to the human or humanity. That's what I'm completely concerned about. What's that animated show where everyone's fat and they're in these people movers? Is it Wally? Yeah, it's Wally. Yeah, yeah. Like I go, okay, that's almost predictive of society sooner than later. I mean, when it comes to Cam, if I could say, hey, Fusion 360. Set me a six by six by three stock size for this. Leave me five tabs at this thickness and make sure I've got enough clearance for the tool holder on our standard roughing tool, tool 16, adaptive to here, go. Yeah. And it would just give me preview tool pass. I'd be like, okay, that was a lot faster than me clicking all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Or if I could just say, hey, apply our usual roughing strategy down to this plane. And this plane is going to be the default safety plane for all the subsequent operations. And then at the end, give me a really slow, safe feed rate, a small tool to break these tabs and so-and-so. I want this part to spring free. Like mm-hmm. If you can talk to it like you would describe to an employee what you want to accomplish, and then it just goes off and does that, yeah. that's going to be wild because then people actually only need to grasp conceptually mm-hmm. how the process works. They do not need to grasp the ins and outs of the particular software interface and know, oh, well, this button does that. And when you scroll, it does that. And you have to make sure to set the value this way with the parentheses. Otherwise this happens. It's like, have you ever done coding? 
like Java or anything no. like that? Yeah. So I, mean, like, I, did, I did C++ in high school. Okay. So like if you miss a little bit of syntax, nothing works. You know, that all goes away. It'd be interesting. I, I know we haven't really talked about having guests on our podcast, but I'm wondering if we reach out to Al Wetmo, who is the cam guy at Autodesk. Yep. Like, I don't know if he could talk or speak to it, but that seems within reach that a company like Autodesk, big multi-billion dollar publicly traded company that gobbles up software companies like there's no tomorrow, that would be the company that I would look to for that type of thing. Because chat GPT currently writes basic G code for bolt yeah. hole pattern or stuff like that. But yeah, and it writes code in all kinds of other languages. You can ask it to compose a quick Python script for you to do this or that function and then look at the sample code, mess with it, adjust it to what you need. Yeah. But it will give you a good starting framework for lots of things. So does it work from like a is I don't know the terminology, like a knowledge base or a neural network? Like it could go in, going back to Cam, see all the programs we've done with brain power and then go, okay, when they do aluminum, they use 100% axial engagement, 15% radial engagement, 8,000 RPM, 380 inches a minute. Okay, we see that that is the bell curve. That's what we're going to apply. That's how it learns, right? I'm not sure how a system would digest that kind of information. And I know that ChatGPT in particular it's pulling from a lot of information, but that information is not necessarily in real time. ChatGPT is not good at super current events because it takes time for information to work itself out and get sucked up and assimilated. But the potential is really extraordinary. And the other thing that it makes exceptionally more valuable is the ability to stand and deliver in person. Mm -hmm. If you can get up in front of a group of people and think on your feet with critical thinking skills and speak clearly and articulately, mm -hmm. you have a superpower. Yeah. Wow. And every other interaction that's based on blogs and articles and back and forth and asynchronous digital communication, where you can always be leaning on an AI, there's a certain sense the same way that like a lot of doctorates, you have to pass an oral exam. There's a reason for that. They've read your dissertation. They want to know if you actually know it. They want to throw some curveballs at you and see, do you actually have a mastery of this? Can you understand the connections? Can you think on your feet and come up with an explanation for this? Or are you just like, well, I can only tell you exactly the things I wrote in my dissertation the way that I said them in my dissertation. Yeah. Huh. And so that's really exciting to me because... That is a skill you can develop. Sure. And you can't develop it instantly. If you could snap your fingers and all of a sudden be in great shape, everybody would be in great shape. Mm -hmm. But if it takes years of work and exercise and diet and all these things to really get into that peak physical condition, if you've got there, you clearly put in the work. There aren't shortcuts. This is another entirely separate podcast, but the same way that things like certain kinds of blockchain applications and Bitcoin, the reason why there is some intrinsic value is because there is no shortcut to generating the thing. Mm -hmm. You cannot just make more up out of thin air. The amount of computational power involved required and the cost of the electricity to generate the computational power, to generate the code, the blockchain, to mine the next chunk of Bitcoin means that it has some irreducible economic cost that's increasing over time. And that creates an intrinsic value in the thing you used 
costing that creates value in the thing it produces in a weird way. Yeah. I don't get too much into cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is a fascination of mine and I own a little bit, just enough so that I have a balance to keep track of on the market to see whether it's going up or going down and what's happening. There you go. Yeah. But the idea of there being things where you have to put in the work and the work takes time. You can parrot all the machining lingo that you want. Like you can hop on Insta Machinist and you can have an AI crawl a bunch of stuff and then put together truthy sounding things. But when a person really has spent years in it and they've worked in all kinds of material on different kinds of machining centers with all kinds of tolerancing and different kinds of challenges, that person can stand and deliver on a shop floor in a way that an AI is not likely to be able to do yet. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And that gets me excited because those soft skills and that knowledge and that ability mm -hmm. can't be copy pasted. Maybe we'll wrap with this. I was watching an automotive video and they talked about the Toyota production system and how Toyota's approach to building in mass quantities is a principle. And they said a Japanese word, but I have not been able to confirm it. The word is jidoka, J-I-D-O-K-A. And I can't find that it means this. Maybe I misspelled it or something, or maybe they mispronounced it, but it is humans plus automation. So one of the things that Tesla did wrong in building the Model 3 is Elon Musk has said they tried to automate everything too soon, and it was a nightmare to the point where they were ripping out automation. Meanwhile, they were building Model 3s in tents in the parking lot in the Fremont mm -hmm. facility. So for us here at Pearson, when we develop stuff, it's always going to be manual. It's going to be one part in a vice. Then we'll go to, okay, well, let's palletize this first operation, then second operation. Then let's buy more advanced machinery so that we stick a round bar in and a fully completed prismatic part comes out the hopper on the other side. It's all that humans plus automation. I do think the future, especially with AI or specifically chat GPT, I don't think it's as nefarious as people are freaking out. I think it will be one of those things where, yeah, certain industries will go away because of it. Number one would probably be copywriting. Yeah. If you exist to write blogs third person for other companies on the internet, oh, you're you done. going to be hurting. Your job's over. Unless you know the best sources of AI to write the appropriate content, and then you come in, like you said, and edit it. That's the future. Yeah. Actually, a friend of mine is starting that company. He ran a copywriting company, mm -hmm. and he now has an AI-based startup that he's working on, and they basically fed it hundreds of thousands of words of their award-winning copywriting stuff to train that neural net to write in the way that they wanted. Yeah. And then they're going to continue to use that technology with their existing copywriting clients. We're going to digest all this material off your website. We're going to give you a proposal for all these topics. AI is going to generate the articles. And then our expert editing team is going to human review every single thing, and then we can post it for you. Yeah. And that as a sort of white glove where the AI is doing the churn of the bulk of the generation and it's really fast. It's doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. Right. But the person has the joysticks and is steering the giant mech that's picking up the tank. Yes. That is completely consistent with how technology has changed manufacturing and many other industries. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited about it because I want a giant mech. <laughs> Anyway, 
Yeah. It's a good place to wrap. There's a lot of stuff that we top, touched on today, like AI and Bitcoin and customer service. Almost any of these things could be its whole own episode. I would love to have somebody like Al Watmo on yeah. and just really pick his brain about what he sees as the future of CAM in places, especially where shops our size, mm-hmm. aren't fully utilizing the tools that are at their disposal. When I, years ago, discovered CAM templates and I could take a program, get it tuned up just the way I want, and anytime I have something like that, create from template, grab all, drop them in there, just select a few safety planes, a few holes or services to exclude, and then post. It's like, I just save 90% of the time mm-hmm. that this part would have taken me to program from scratch. And I now have the consistency of if I ever need to go back and redo this and I've updated my template, I can just drop the fresh template over top, make a few more changes, and off I go. Yeah. It's pretty exciting stuff. That would be interesting. It'd be super fun. Yeah. I'll catch you next week, Jay. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Have a great week.